Namaste. This is Farinaz Raleigh, the producer of Drishti Point Yoga Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Drishti Point has been recording podcasts since 2006, and we have over 300 podcasts that we are currently uploading to this site and others. Please be sure to visit our website, drishtipoint.ca, for the top 100 podcasts. We hope this podcast will nourish your mind and open your heart. Namaste. And we're here today with Aura Sundara Mames is our guest. And Aura did a three-year, three-month, three-day silent retreat. But she's talking now, and that's a good thing. So, Aura, let's just start with, tell me, what's, you know, what do you do for, I mean, do you just sit in a room and not talk for three years? Uh... What does it look like to do a three-year, three-month, three-day silent retreat? Well, the retreat I did is um, a traditional three-month retreat in a Tibetan tradition. And um, what we do is we do um, four sessions a day. And so you do four long meditation sessions every day, one before dawn, one before noon, one before dusk, and one after dark. And someone leads these meditations? Is there a teacher... Everything is actually done privately in the retreat I did. There were six of us, but we each had our own cabin, and we each had um, a lot of training before. I mean, I'd been trained for about six or seven years in different uh, meditation practices, and then we kind of were on our own, mostly. We uh, met every couple months, like every two or three months, we'd meet and check in, you know, and write some notes if we were having problems. Wow. Just checking, you know, with each other and see how it was going. But mostly we did all of our practice alone. So okay, I'm trying to still get the picture in my head here. So you're in your cabin. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you eat together? Do you prepare your own food? You're just alone totally by yourself? Totally alone. People cooked for us. Um, I lived in a Mongolian yurt, which is basically a glorified tent made out of yak hair. <laughs> and so it's like a little round tent made out of felt um, with a canvas cover. And... We had um, fences around the yurts, and we had caretakers cooking for us. And so they would bring food twice a day and leave it in a box outside. So we actually never saw the people who were cooking for us. And it was kind of a time to um, just get deep into the meditation practice and also to step away from who you used to be. And so that was part of the point of not seeing anyone is that the um, goal of the retreat is to is to change your mind in as big a way as um, as you can and to do that sometimes it can be helpful to get away from your old life and how other people see you and what their expectations are of you and so we um, we chose not to see anyone or have any outside communication Wow okay so I, I try to imagine myself doing this so mm-hmm. here I am alone in the cabin in Arizona Uh, I don't see anybody for weeks on end. Mm -hmm. Um, The the meditation practices, so you'd already sort of learned these meditation practices and been taught them before you get there. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about what goes on inside your head when you're... My, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just have a vision of myself running, screaming. Okay, <laughs> that's really all the only that happens sometimes. You want to do that. Um, it starts out. I mean, my experience was that in the beginning, it was very exciting, and you have these like big visions, like I'm going to get enlightened. I'm going to go into the desert. I'm going to be quiet. Um, you know, I'm going to have visions of like angels coming to me, or you know, something like dramatic, because it's it feels so big. Like you basically before you do a retreat like this, it's almost like you're planning your death. You have to stop all 
your business. You have to say goodbye to all your friends. Like you shut down. My teacher had us give away everything we owned. So it's like you're you're ready for something new and big to happen. So the first few months, like you're kind of excited. Like you've been preparing and your your energy is really high. Mm-hmm. And then it gets hard <laughs> after I'd say about three months, and um, you go through a major like sensory deprecation def- de- deprecation period de- deprivation de- deprivation period. <laughs> there we go. Yes, <laughs> to relearn words afterwards too. Like um, you know where you have um, you just aren't seeing anything new. You know, and the desert gets old, and it's just you and your mind. And the same meditations day after day. I mean, so I used to have fantasies about supermarkets, you know, like just like commercials or like everything you've seen sort of runs through your head and um, just the desire to see anything different. Like we'd get things sent in like a tea bag box and you'd read the ingredients, you know, on the tea box like 50 times just because you're so used to having um, so much stimulation in your life that... um, that was the next stage for me like what you know what am I going to do I have nothing to do here and then I think there's a stage after that where you have to just surrender to the quiet Mm. and then you have to go into your own mind because there's nothing else to do wow and did you did you write did you paint did you was it strictly we do we just meditate um, a little bit of reading we were allowed to bring um, a couple prayer books and commentaries on the um, meditations we were doing but no um, novels or anything like that right we were allowed to write but it was discouraged to write extensively you know it wasn't about writing a novel if you I kept a journal sometimes just to stay in just helped me um, sometimes to get my thoughts on paper. Right. Um, no music, you know. No, really, really didn't do didn't do anything. Like you watch the ants, you know. You get <laughs> like the ants become really exciting, and the lizards, you know. Like it's um, it's it's an extreme, you know, to do something like that for so long. But because there's nothing else to do, um, you have to. You have to work on your mind. Right. You have to find, there's nothing interesting outside, and so you have to find something interesting inside, or else you'll go crazy. Right. You know, that's the thing. Like, you will go nutty. If you go and just lock yourself up in a cabin for three years and you don't have something meaningful to do with your mind, you right. probably will go crazy. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I, would, I think I would, yes. Um, okay, so we'll get a little bit more into what you've maybe what you found in a minute but I'd really be curious to talk about you know what is it that prompts a you know lovely young woman to decide that she wants to do this was it a was it a moment of aha I know what I need to do was it a gradual decision process over a long period of time what was it that said I have to do this as you said quite extreme thing I think I think for me it was a a long term um, series of events that ended up um, with me doing this retreat. I um, I grew up in California, New England, and was sort of like, a, you know, I was, I was good in school, I had friends, everything was going good for me, but I just think I wasn't really satisfied by it, and I always wanted to do something different. And so I planned this big trip right when I graduated from high school. About two days later, I left and started traveling around Europe. And I ended up traveling around Europe for a year, and then I went to India for six months. Oh. And I connected with um, some Tibetan Buddhist teachers there, 
and was really excited about that and studied with some great teachers and then came back to New York City to go to college where I met an American monk named Geshe Michael Roach who I had a really strong connection with and started studying um, Buddhist philosophy with him and started working for him as well. And so I sort of studied and worked with him full time for the past 12 years now, but a number of years um, before the retreat. And he was the one who um, got me into serious meditation and the, um, also this three-year retreat as well. It was sort of came, came from my studies with him. And we're back with Drishti Point. We're talking with Aura Sundara Mames. And Aura's going to tell us a little bit more about the relationship between yoga and this retreat process that she did. Mm. Well, I've studied yoga in the tradition of uh, Master Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And, you know, in them he has the eight limbs of yoga. You know, the foundations being the um, yamas and niyamas, basically you know, how we treat other people and how we, um, how, we, how we live a meaningful life. And then you, you know, move into the um, other limbs, which have the, um, you know, asana, um, the actual physical postures and the pranayama, and then, you know, the higher limbs having to do with meditation. And, you know, it, I was taught um, that it was very important to have a um, physical yoga practice in order to do meditation. And, and I found that to be true. I tried to meditate for many years before I did a regular yoga practice, and it was much more difficult for me. I think I had a lot more um, physical pain, mm. and I think it was harder to get my mind settled. And then at a certain point, I started... Um, studying yoga and um, had a daily practice. I did an Ashtanga practice throughout the three-year retreat. Um, and I studied with a really beautiful um, traditional Ashtanga teacher in New York. And that, I think, um, it was just such, such, a, such a help to my meditation practice. It helped me sit. It helped balance my breathing. It helped balance the prana. Um, and, you know, it's still hard. But I think that trying to meditate without doing yoga is... Um, is difficult and it's not really even recommended in the traditions I've studied in. Oh, okay, because we often think of meditation as being such a mental exercise, you know, and I think that's really good for people to to think about it that can that the physical asanas are not the only part of yoga but are still a, an important part in terms of working on mm-hmm. something like meditation. Um, so can you tell me any more about the meditations that you actually did when you were on the retreat? I know it's, it's hard when you're not actually doing them. Sure. Um, but yeah, because someone who doesn't know that much about meditation, you just, you know, many people think that meditation is where I sit and don't think about anything. Mm-hmm. And call, yeah. Yeah. Well, in um, meditation, as it's been taught to me, it's, it's really important to think about something because... You know, if you don't think about anything, um, is that going to change you? You know, they say that, like, rabbits can sit and think about nothing all day, and are they <laughs> going to get enlightened? You know, um, maybe, but um, my experience is, is that the, the reason to meditate is to, is to do something different with your mind. You know, mm-hmm. we have our habitual ways of seeing ourselves, of seeing other people, and um, if that's making us happy, that's great, but... If we're not happy, you know, totally blissfully happy 100% of the day, we might want to try to find a way to think differently. And so meditation is a tool to 
um, change who you are and change how you interact with other people and um, change how you see the world. And so you have to learn how to think differently. And so the meditations we did were very specific and we studied them for many years. Um, the retreat I did was, um, it was um, a specific meditation practice called the Angel of Diamond. And that means a lot of things. Like the Angel mm -hmm. of Diamond can be you as you will be when you totally perfect yourself like you will be the angel of diamond right. or it is also um, some kind of holy being who you might be able to meet who could make you become that perfect person and you know relating to yoga there's a lot of scriptures that also say that the angel of diamond is that own like kundalini energy inside your own body right you know it's um it's not something outside of you, it's something within you. And that when it is fully awakened and fully alive, like that, you will become that being. So the meditations we did are actually, they're called yogas in the um, ancient Sanskrit and Tibetan texts. They're called the 11 yogas of the angel of diamond. 11 practices to make you become this like totally radiant, blissful being who can serve all beings like simultaneously. That sounds like a tall order. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you need to do like long retreat to get there, right? Yeah, yeah. But, Three um, years doesn't seem nearly long enough to get mm -hmm. there now that I think of it. And, you know, the different um, yogas, as they call them, you know, are practices. You could say practices. Um, they cover all different parts of your life. Like the first few have to do with um, how you sleep. And so there was actually a yoga of sleeping like what you would think of before you go to bed. How wow. would you set your intention before you slept? Hmm. Um, the second was a yoga of waking. How is it you're going to see yourself in the morning? Like, are you going to wake up like grumpy that you have to sit and meditate all day? Are you going to wake up like trying to imagine what kind of holy activities are you going to do to serve the world by meditating all day? Like, how are you going to choose to see yourself when you wake up? So it was actually a whole practice of how to wake up. Wow. Um, we did a practice. The third one is called the, it's, it's, it's a yoga of blessing your your speech of blessing but specific it actually covers more than the speech it covers your whole body and mm -hmm. so you do a practice of imagining that you are purifying all of the um, channels inside your body and they're just become filled with like radiant light and that every um, word you say which you don't do in retreat but mm -hmm. you know every if you're doing it in daily life you know whatever you say to someone else or whatever gesture you make or whatever thought you have might have an impact like far beyond the um, confines of your cabin right and so you know they're they're like this um then the actual like sitting meditation yogas we did um some of them had to do with um kind of calling upon the um divine in the world right you know? so you might sit and do a meditation where you ask um you know all of your teachers all of the holy beings in the world all of all of the wise beings in the world to just come and notice you like i've just, i'm here you know i've cut myself off from everything else like i don't know if you exist or not but if you do you know please um please come and, and help me, inspire me, like give me your blessings. Right. And so you do, you know, maybe you'd sit and do an hour meditation just asking for help. Right. And, you know, that's a leap of faith because, like, do we know these beings exist? Can they hear us, you know? Mm -hmm. 
But, but, you know, we do a lot of silly things in our life. Like, we'll watch a bad TV show for an hour, you know, regularly. Yes, that's true. It's like you could try once, you know. Maybe (laughs) maybe it won't work. You'll just have wasted an hour. But, you know, it's like you might sit and do an hour meditation on asking all of the divine influences of the world to come and inspire you. Right. Um, And then we do meditations on how could you, how would you be, if you were um, totally perfect, if you were enlightened, if you were a Buddha, if you had become a totally perfect being, what would you be like? Mm. You know, what would your mind be like? And what would your body be like? Right. And this is, you know, like a really powerful meditation because it changes how you think about yourself. You know, we think that we are, you know, we have, we have some good qualities, we have some bad qualities, we can do this, we can't do that, but our views of ourselves are very limited. And so, if, like, in retreat, one of the things you might do is you might consciously sit there for 30 minutes, an hour, or two hours, and see yourself as you would like to be. You're like, mm. how would you be if you had um, no bad thoughts at all? If you loved everyone, like, how would you look? How would you move? How, what would you do? Um, and then start to identify with that. You know, not in a delusional way, but like... Okay. Um, you know, could yeah. could this be me, and what would I do? Mm. So, th- so things like this. These are just little tastes of the different um, yogas of the Angel of Diamond. What we did. That sounds like uh, you would have to change. It mm-hmm. sounds like a profoundly life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. So, tell me now. You know, having done it, and you did it between two thousand and two thousand and three, mm-hmm. right? So you've had, you know, it's had a little time to settle, I uh-huh. suppose. Um, from that, can you, what what changed for you from the process of doing it? Hmm. I think it made me humble. Um, I think you know. I first of all, I'd say that I realized that that it is a that it is a big um, job to totally change yourself. Right. But that, but that it can be done. I mean, I think you do notice changes in yourself over time. We all change over time. Mm-hmm. But it's a question of how we change. Right. You know, it's not that you can't change. It's how do you want to change? Um, I think the things I really noticed were very were very simple. I mean, I think it's just uh, more of an interest in other people's feelings, more mm. of a desire to help people. As far as like an ability to help people, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I think more of a commitment to spending my life to trying to help people. Right. And I think that's that's huge. You know, I like th- yes. Um, but also, you know, like that, I, there's a lot of work to do. Right. And that, um, you have a long ways to go as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I, I, I'm trying to imagine this. So, you've done your three years. Mm-hmm. And then, like, what happens kind of the first day you come <laughs> back? Do you just, like, run around to the supermarket looking at things? Do you watch television? <laughs> what do you do on your first day back um, in the world? <laughs> My, my experience is I had a friend pick me up and it was evening time and we drove out and I felt like I was on another planet. <laughs> like, like literally, like I remember, you know, I was in the Arizona desert and I saw the next town over and it was just like lights in the dark and it's like, you know, like, where am I? <laughs> you know, like I, I felt like, because I'd been so quiet so long. Yes. And just, you know, I hadn't seen anything. And so it's sort of like that, like LSD trippy vividness you get, like... Right. They always say that, right? Like, yeah. if you want to have, like, a permanent, like, LSD trip, like, do a lot of meditation. <laughs> right. I can say that that's partially true, you know? Like, yes. it's, like, there's a certain um, clarity to your vision. And and I think also um, everything you hear 
becomes a lot more meaningful because you've been so quiet and just listening to everything inside that it's almost like you're, you relate to the world differently. Like you have more of a sense that your world is coming from you mm-hmm. to say very simply. And so it's like you feel almost like you're looking for messages in the world and that everything people do around you had, has a deeper meaning. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Did, were there, were there things you missed and were eager to get back to? Or had you kind of, after three years, did it just, did, you know, was it was that gone? so long that um, you kind of just had to let it go. I, yes. I missed showers, personally. That was like my big thing. Like we didn't have hot showers. We had those the solar camping showers in the summer. Uh, yes. You know, on Sundays, you get a solar camping shower. And then in the winter, we had um, number two metal buckets heated up with water, heated up on a wood stove. So I missed showers. That was my main thing. Right. But, um... That was kind of it. I was really excited about light switches for a little bit. I was like, oh, it's so easy. Because we had candles and lanterns, and so you couldn't you know, see much at night. But, but it's, it's, it's amazing what you can get used to. Right. You, know, you, don't, you don't need 95% of the things you think you need. And you really don't miss them after that long. So after you've been away for a little bit, you just kind of forget about it. I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> personally, I don't know. But... Um. And we're back with Drishti Point. Today we're speaking with Aura Sundara Mames, who's in town talking about the three-year, three-month, three-day retreat that she did between 2000 and 2003. So I'm going to ask the question, why that particular number of years, months, and days? Mm. I, I don't know exactly why that length, but the one thing I have heard is that in a, in a retreat of that length, you would um, traditionally do 3,200,000 repetitions of a particular mantra. And it simply takes about that much time to do it. Um, you do, sometimes you can do a one month retreat and you'll do 100,000 repetitions of a mantra during that, as long as along, along with other um, practices. You'd have your yoga practice and other meditations you're doing. But that takes about a month. So kind of you want to do three million two hundred thousand mantras <laughs> you probably want to schedule i think the yogis of the past they probably tested it out a few times and found out three years three months three days is kind of gives you a little cushion on either end and enough time to do them all right so you actually do have a job to complete in, you, your, th- yeah, in you have, your time you have certain we had certain you know like um you know goals i guess like you, you it gives you some way to pace yourself like the mantras are not the only thing you're doing but they are something you can count so you you know if you have that kind of western mind that wants to feel like you're making progress like yeah i made you know one million three hundred thousand you know halfway or you know did you have like a way to keep track of time didn't the days all just run together after a while they did i we um at first i didn't keep track of time at all i thought it would be interesting and um and then i i did start to keep track more because we did have a little bit of a schedule like for example the people who who cooked for us they took Mondays off and so they would give us extra food on Sunday and then they wouldn't come on Monday so even if you were trying not to follow time you always kind of knew when it was Monday because you didn't get any food (laughs) (laughs) a very basic Um, way to keep track and then you you followed the seasons and um, and there's certain um, days on the lunar calendar where we would do certain prayers and so I like to keep track of that too but you could pretty much just keep track from watching the moon as well right you didn't really need a calendar uh-huh. so, 
Right. So, so tell me a little bit about you were. How many of you were on this retreat, and what were the other people like? There were six of us on the retreat. I did, and it was um, led. You know, although most of the training was before by uh, my teacher, a man named Geshe Michael Roach, who's originally from Arizona, and is now about in his early fifties, and. He has been a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for about 25 years. So you have a sort of scholarly American Buddhist monk type. Okay, yes. And there was another woman who, um, this beautiful woman, she's like an Amazon princess. She's like six foot three, like, you know, she had like just this like beautiful like power about her, um, who had been um, working in technical writing she used to write technical books for um computer manuals and stuff like so it's like okay really that's smart, very different you know, yes. mind. but on the side she started studying buddhism and then got very involved and is actually now a nun um she's probably in her mid-40s so she was sort of a businesswoman turned turned um, buddhist, buddhist nun, nun after, and she actually after she completed this retreat she did another three-year retreat right after it she took like a two-month break and she did another one <laughs> wow she like didn't want to stop um and then there was me i was the youngest i was 23 when i started you know kind of just graduated from college like really excited um i guess no birthday cakes no 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 we didn't get birthday cakes <laughs> <laughs> and then there were two other women who were they were actually both the same age they were about 26 when we started one of them was a nyu photography um graduate very artistic mind very disciplined um had been doing like yoga her whole life so she was sort of just this i don't know i guess a very um she was like the yogini like okay girl. yes i, I can, guess she could I describe get the her, picture like, yes <laughs> and then uh another girl who i guess was kind of like a punk rocker and teenage girl who oh, wow. ended up traveling around with the renaissance fair for a number of years was like a sword fighter and just like really fun did a lot of martial arts and things right. like this and she she kind of just had this really intense mind like she just got so excited about these ideas like she just like i want it i want to do it and see if it works and right. you know she just was always doing kind of wild things and these and these people had all you know studied really hard for years before so it was it was a mix and there were three of us who were quite young you know in our early 20s who did right. it and just had that kind of excited inspired energy going into it right. and everyone who started finished um mm-hmm and there was one other woman, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention her yet, um, who was a, a woman from Barbados mm-hmm. who had worked in the diamond industry and just got really interested in Buddhism and had become a nun a number of years before. And she was much more quiet. She used to do embroidery in her spare time and, you know, big mix. Embroidery, sword fighting. <laughs> embroidery, sword fighting, hobbies. yoga, yes. you know, scholars. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of a, a motley crew. Wow. And now did you... so? It's, it's like a, I mean, it's like a marathon. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a meditation marathon. Oh, yeah. So, how did you did you train for this? We did a lot of um, scriptural training. We studied one book in particular that was a commentary on this Angel of Diamond practice for about three years before, and we all did a number of shorter retreats. We did probably six or seven one month retreats before we did this long one. Right. So, I guess you would kind of figure out in the one month if you could, you know. It's like you sprint before you run the marathon. That kind yeah, of yeah. Although sense. it was a pretty big jump. Yes. Um, I might recommend doing a six-month retreat, or but right. but in a way, I think it's easier to do a three-year retreat than to do like a three-week retreat because when you do a really long retreat, you really have to give up everything else. 
Right. Whereas if you do a three-week retreat, you know, it takes a week for your mind just to settle from your regular life. And then you have like a week and then you're starting to think about what you're going to do when you get out. And right. so your mind's a little bit divided in a shorter retreat. Longer retreat, you know, some people do it just like, I'm just going to do retreat until I get enlightened. You know, and then you don't have any other plans. Right. So it can be easier in a way. So tell me a little bit more about the practicalities of that. I'm sure many of our listeners are going, well, yeah, but I can't just walk away from my life for three years or six months for that mm-hmm. matter. Yeah. Um, did you, you know, did you... I see that you're trying to fundraise for a future one. Did you fundraise so you could all go here to this place? Did you just mm-hmm. throw caution to the winds? And what did you do? A little bit of both. Um, we set a date, mm-hmm. and we decided we were going to start on that date, whether or not we had the money, whether or not our places were built. And they actually weren't built. We ended up doing the first three months in a tent <laughs> oh. because our cabins weren't done. Right. So I think um, to a certain extent, if you want to do something like this, you just have to decide to do it. Right. Whether or not all the conditions are going to be perfect, because the conditions are never going to be perfect. Right. Um, and we also did have some very generous sponsors. We had one woman in particular who gave us a large sum of money. She had a house she that she was waiting to sell, and she gave us a large amount of the money from the sale of her house to sponsor this retreat. Wow. And interesting, the same woman, um, you know, just a little show of how karma works out. Someone recently just gave her a huge amount of money to build a retreat cabin of her own so she could do three-year retreats. So, oh, you know, it kind of works out. Um, yeah, that's neat. So um, I understand there are big plans for the future of mm-hmm. doing another retreat. Tell me about that. Well, the place where I did this retreat is called Diamond Mountain. It's Diamond Mountain Retreat Center and University, and it's located in southern Arizona. And we have 1,000 acres of land. 500 are dedicated to education, and there's a free university where you can study um, Buddhist philosophy, yoga philosophy, Sanskrit, sacred dance, you know, all for free. There's a couple, about 150 people who come three times a year for courses. And then the other half of that property is designated for serious retreat. Right. And right now we have maybe four or five cabins, Mm -hmm. but we have 90 people who are planning on doing a three-year retreat in 2010. So, actually already, there are already 90 people who've sort of signed on to this deal? Yeah, yeah we've got a, okay. there's a group of about 150 people who are doing a, kind of an advanced training course there in Buddhism, yoga, and meditation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, the end of their training is to do this retreat. Wow. So over the next few years, we're trying to um, raise enough money to build cabins there for this retreat to happen but not just this retreat the idea is to have a place where people can come and do long retreat for many many years to come so wow no, i just i it just it blows my mind that there are 90 people in the <laughs> world who really want to do mm-hmm. this that's that's just amazing so that's kind of what's next for you know diamond mountain a little bit uh, are you going to do it again? What's next for you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do another one in That's... 2010. And I'm helping to teach some of the meditation classes in Arizona to sort of share some of my experiences, good and bad, of you know what worked and didn't work for me doing the retreat before. So right. people can you know, not make the same mistakes. Um, and, and that's pretty much what I do. I live out at Diamond Mountain Retreat Center, and... 
sort of help with the classes there. And when I'm not there, I tend to travel around and help teach classes on Buddhism and yoga and or help other people. I travel a lot with my teacher who does, you know, a lot of workshops as well all over the world. Wow, that sounds like a pretty interesting life. So, Aura, for those of us who, you know, are listening not from Vancouver or aren't able to make it down to your, your talk, and if I'm a new person, never meditated before, give me some ideas about where to start. Hmm, it's, um, it's best to learn from a person. Um, but if you, I mean, I, the resource I could point you to right away is we have um, a university in southern Arizona called Diamond Mountain University, and we have a lot of classes there, and hundreds of classes literally are available for free online. So if you don't have a local teacher, you could listen to some classes online, right. and those are at um, diamondmtn.org. So it's D-I-A-M-D-I-A-M-O-N-D-M-T-N.org, or you can just Google Diamond Mountain University. Mm. As far as learning, it's hard. I mean, I think you'd have to look in your own area and see if you can find a good teacher. And I would say try to find a teacher who will teach you something with some good content. I mean, I think it's you don't want to accidentally end up meditating on nothing for three years, you know. So right. it's, it's hard to just, say, find a meditation teacher. Um, you know, I could point you in the direction of the classes that I know are good. Right. And then I'd say set up um, a place in your house and a time in the morning and, you know, try to do something every day, even if it's just five minutes. Okay. And, and then, you know, start from there. But you need some instructions, you know. So listen, listen to a class, find a, find a good book. Right. You know, something, anything by the Dalai Lama is going to be good. Yeah, pretty safe bet with the Dalai Lama, I think. And he was he was just here recently, yeah. so I know there'll be there'll be people out there who were there to hear the Dalai Lama talk too. Okay, so we're just about out of time. I wanted to thank you for being here with us today. It's been lovely to meet you. The best of luck with this ninety uh, person <laughs> retreat in twenty ten. Mm. I think that's a truly amazing goal that that you that your group has has set to do and uh it's a you know it's a lot of positive energy going out into the world to have 90 people meditating for three years so thank you very much mm, thank you and that's it for this week's drishti point namaste it's far again thanks so much for listening don't forget to visit our website drishtipoint.ca for the best of the best Drishti Point podcasts. And if you like this podcast and want to support our work, please consider becoming a Drishti Point member or making a donation of any amount to support the work we do to spread the light and love of yoga. We wish you health, happiness, prosperity, longevity, and vitality. Namaste.